time in 1st Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been working through the book of 1st Thessalonians, talking about basic Christianity. There is a text in chapter 2 that if you remember a number of months ago, I, uh, I, had, I had done a path, laid out a passage and then only preached half of it and said I will come back to these couple of verses later. So we're back this morning in 1st Thessalonians 2. I'm going to read 17 to 20, but we're really looking at verses 19 and 20 this morning. Talking about eternal impact. Hear then the Word of God. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored all the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we come this morning to Your Word. We know that it is living and true. And Father, we would tune our hearts according to Your Word that they too would be living and true. And so come and form us in the image of Your Word, in the image of Christ according to Your Word. Open our eyes and give us ears and and soften our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. I have many times in my life, either on applications, I think even on ministerial data forms when, when pastors fill them out for uh, opportunities within our denomination, and you, you basically put down things about yourself, your gifts and your orientations and stuff to help match pastors with their churches, but I've also had to put check it on different applications I've done along the way. And it's that question that asks you, are you task-oriented or people-oriented? Have you ever seen that on different things? If not, it's, it's out there. Um, I've, I've often bristled at the... The question, I've, I've not liked it most of the time, and I, partly because I struggle with it within myself. Because the truth is, forgive me, the truth is, I'm task-oriented. But I want to be, and I know the value and the power of being people-oriented. And I'm sometimes jealous of people who are just naturally and easily sensitive and in tune and, and intuitive with people. And, and so here's how I answer it. I always answer it as both these days. Whether you like it or not. And I know they don't like that. But I'm, I don't like it either. So that, there, that's what you get. You get both. Why? Because I am task-oriented by, in a sense, nature, by my wiring. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's sometimes some, it's our strength. And just because we're stronger in one place, though, doesn't mean that we should wor- shouldn't work on our weaknesses. Oh, that's too bad. I'm task-oriented, so <laughs> I don't need to worry about you. No, we need to grow in our weaknesses. And if you're people-oriented, there are things you've got to get done. You can't just talk to people all the time. So I am both, and I always write down, I am both. I am task-oriented by nature, and I am people-oriented by training, by hard work, because I believe in the value, and so I try to 
be attentive to people and move toward people. I work at it. I pray about it. I think about it. And I work toward it. Because I believe it's extremely valuable. We've been talking this weekend about what it means to be real men. In the biblical model and mold of Jesus and not men in the mold of the culture. And these are, in many ways, polar opposites of each other and what I think we are being called to as men. And we looked at uh, starting in Genesis and the image of God and how He created us and, and, the, and the ways that He patterned for us as men to step up, uh, who He has made us to be. We talked about the fall and how that has broken our masculinity, it has, has scarred us, men and women, in our femininity as well, and so that, that we are not all that we should be and could be. One of the things we talked about is a male tendency toward isolation. In how we tend, we, we tend not to get too close to show our vulnerability, our weaknesses, our failures, our insecurities, our fears, our hurt, or whatever. We don't tend to show that to each other, we, so we tend to isolate. I want to talk about our call to be real disciples. Real disciples to invest ourselves in others. To invest ourselves to build up others. What does it mean to take our masculine gifts and strength? And I believe that as women, God has wired you a certain way and made you a certain way and He's given you gifts and strengths. And then you also have your talents and there's something for you, the way that God what He wants you to do with yours. And I think that there is something that God has given to men and our gifts and our wiring and what it means to be masculine. And what does it mean for men then in our strength, our masculine strength, what He has given us to use our strength to empower and to bless and to build up others. We're saying on the retreat so often, men in our culture are takers. Selfish. And they serve themselves and they take what they want. Where biblically, I believe what it means to be a man is to be a giver. And that with the strength and the gifts that God has given us is to invest them to build up and empower others around us. Ladies, you have a similar calling to use your gifts and your strengths. Titus 2, this didn't make it to, uh, to the slides. Titus 2, 3-5, to it says this, Older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. So there's a, there's that role for women. It did make the slides. There it is. Josh is on top of things. That there is to take our strength as older women there, don't take that, take that as mature. You have experienced. There is nothing, nothing that can replace experience. No classroom, no teaching, no learning that can, can, we have something to give. And God calls us to give it and to pass it on, to invest it into others. So as older men, we are to train our younger men what it looks like to love their wives and their children and to follow Christ. And there is no substitute for the experience of years of doing that. 
But as men, we have trouble stepping up. It's just true. We have, we have trouble pouring out our strength on behalf of others. We struggle to conserve it and to spend it on ourselves. A temptation to spend our strength in, in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. And that strength that God has given to us, we tend to let it be siphoned off. And so instead of being poured into our wives and our children and other men, that strength that God has given for the building up and the empowering and the blessing of others, we allow it to be siphoned off into what? And you tell me. Where does your strength go? Where do you give it away? Where do you pour it out? Where is it in so many ways wasted? We spend our strength frivolously. And so we're too tired to give away. We have nothing to give. How can we be givers and not takers if we don't have anything left to give? Because of our brokenness, we're not only tempted to isolation then, we are tempted to selfishness. And I do believe this is a, a nagging temptation among, I guess, all human beings. But I see it among men and particularly young men as we strive to figure out what it means to be masculine, to be men, to step up. And instead of pouring out our strength, we live self-indulgent lives. We have young men who are having a hard time transitioning from childhood to manhood. What it means, because a lot of times what men want to do, and you see it on into their 30s and even into their early 40s, we want to play. We, we, want to, we want to do what we want to do with our time. We want to have hobbies and sports and entertainment. I'm worried about me time and I work hard and so I, I, I tend then to, to be stingy with my time and my attention and I want to play and I want to, to do stuff for me. I'm not talking about an appropriate and healthy amount of recreation. I'm talking about a bent and a drift towards selfishness. That is not people oriented. By training. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things away. I gave up childish things. And we are having more and more trouble doing that. And so I would, this is a call to man is to look at our lives and to say, what does it look like to be a man and to put aside what I did and was and able to do when I was single or when I lived alone when I was a teenager when other people supported me and what does it look like to man up? God calls us to stop indulging ourselves and to start having enough resources that we can start spending ourselves and investing in others, and pouring ourselves out, our strength out, into the lives of other people. What am I saying? I'm saying that people and relationships are the whole point of life. That's just a truth that we need to wrap our minds and our hearts around, which is why I can't be satisfied with being simply task-oriented. Because people... Whatever tasks I'm doing, they should benefit people. But, but people and relationships are the whole point of life. The two great commandments. Jesus, what are they? Love the Lord your God. Be in relationship with Him. Love Him with your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And love 
others, your neighbors, love others as you love yourself. Love people. Be in relationship with people. The two greatest things that you could be about in your entire life is about relationship. First, know and love your God. And out of the strength that comes from that relationship, love the people around you. Invest and pour into them your wives, your children, other men. It is the high calling of life. Paul makes it so clear throughout these letters that it is his calling. That this is what he is about. It's the driving force of his life. To spend himself for others. He's writing in this passage, as we return here to this portion of the letter, his letter, and he is explaining his personal and relational, and ultimately his eschatological. If you don't know that word eschatology, the eschaton is the end. Eschatology is that study of the end things or to talk about the end times. And so as Paul is trying to, to explain to these folks why he didn't make it back to visit them, he's trying to explain his personal and relational and, and ultimately he goes to his eschatological reasons why he tried so hard to return to them. Isn't that what he's saying in these verses in 17 and 18? We were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person but not in heart. We love you guys. We miss you guys. We long to be back with you. And so he says, we endeavored all the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. To be people oriented. To be with you. And he says, we were hindered. Satan interfered. And then he goes all eschatological on them. But what is our hope? our joy, our crown, before the Lord Jesus at His parousia. When Jesus comes. Right? He's just talking about why He didn't make it back to see Him. Right? Paul always, you know, he's just talking about why he, didn't, he wasn't able to make it. Sorry, he couldn't make it. Something got, you know, something, something got in the way. Best laid plans of mice and men. But he goes all eschatological on him and he says, you know, I wanted to and here's why I wanted to. Because What is my joy on the day that I stand before the Lord Jesus? What is my hope as I stand before Jesus when He returns and the skies are rolled back and Jesus is there and and we're there? What is our hope? What is our joy? And He says, isn't it you? You are my glory. You people my joy you guys are a great part of my hope on that day as I think about that day I can't think of it apart from you and the relationship that we have had that's what Paul says I can't think about that day even this present moment and that but doesn't that day define this present moment for us doesn't it tell us what this present moment ought to be when we think, when we can't think of this moment of our relationship and being together and face to face, as Paul says, apart from the day that we'll stand with Him, we can't do it. Paul says, it's the people that I invested in. It is my crown. My hope. I told you as I preached that when I came to this text the first time, there are two great spiritual realities in this text. And I, and I was planning to do them in one sermon, and I didn't. When, as, I, as I talked and looked at um, Satan's hindrance 
in the reality of spiritual warfare, which was the first great spiritual reality, and I said, I just don't have time to do them both. So we did spiritual warfare last time. The second great the spiritual reality that's revealed in this text is, is just this, the supreme and eternal value of the human soul. Which is why people in relationship are the driving thing of all of life. First our souls in relationship with God, and then our souls in relationship with other souls. And it's those souls that will stand before Him on that day. Nothing else. Not your 401k, not your job, not your yard, you know, not your car, not your not, nothing else will stand before Him on that day. You're going to stand before Him and it's going to be me and you. And there's a supreme value then in me and you. In our relationship, in the call to love each other and to pour ourselves out to each other. And so we know the great value of souls. We know it already because Jesus died to save souls. To save you. To stand before Him on that day. But what Paul does here in this text is he takes that great truth that's out there, the great value of the human soul, and he takes that great truth that is out there and he helps us to translate it into our everyday priorities. And that's what he's doing here. And in relationship, we have a model here then for relationship. Paul's relationship with these guys. He takes this great idea, this eschatological idea of the value of human souls on the day we stand there. And he translates it down into his own priorities. And his relationship with these guys and the other folks that he works with. And he says, and here is where the rubber meets the road. Here is where it's worked out. At the coming of Jesus, people... Think about it. The people we have invested in. Our hope. Our joy. Our crown. The people that we invested in. This is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, and as he does through the book, I'm ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our very selves or as the literal translation could be our very souls. Soul to soul. This is why he says, I wanted to share with you not only the gospel and some of the great eschatological truths out there, but my soul, but I wanted to share with you our very souls as well. I want to relate to you and to pour into you and to strengthen you and to build you up and to encourage you and for my strength to become your strength. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 8, following this, he says, knowing that you stand firm. When I got word that you guys stood firm in the faith, you know, that it's all still there, he says, now we really live. Remember that? And Paul means it. Why? Because he's thinking eschatologically. He knows, like, you are my hope, my joy, and my crown. Not for now, but in a sense... Forever, you know, that, that this is what really matters. And knowing that you stand, knowing that you are in the faith and growing in the faith and loving the Lord and loving each other, this makes me live. This is my joy. So he says in chapter 3, verse 10, and so we want to come to you. I still want to come to you. I still want to come to you. Why? Why does Paul want to see you face to face? He says it again. Why? To supply what is lacking in your faith. I want to disciple you. I want to strengthen your faith. 
I want to help you to grow in Christ. I want you to understand better and know more. And I want you to walk more holy. And I want you to, I, I want to supply whatever it is that, where you need to grow and where you're weak and you haven't, and you're not strong. I want to come and invest in you. I want to invest in you because you are my crown on that day. Poor, we want to pour ourselves out for the ones that Jesus poured himself out for. Jesus poured himself out for a blood bought people. And that's where we take that high and lofty truth of the value of souls and, and, and translate it into the practical thing that as Jesus poured out himself for his people, and then He calls us, and particularly I speak to you men, who in many ways are Christ in the home. And we speak much of male headship and leadership and believing that in many ways we as men are meant to represent Christ to the world, Christ to our wives and to our children in our home, and as men in the church to to represent well is one of the things we were made for to incarnate the image of God to the world. So we need to pour ourselves out for the same people that Jesus poured Himself out to invest in their spiritual progress. Paul says in Colossians 1, in Him, or Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? This is, this is Paul, this is the driving, you know, what I'm about. It's, I do all of this because I want to present everyone mature in Christ. And I would say, men, that is your calling. It's not just Paul's calling. It's not just a pastor's calling or an apostle's calling. That is, this is the work of the church. And men, first and foremost, in your families, and as you step up in the life of the church, and I believe that as every part does its part, our job is to see that we present everyone mature in Christ. That we are investing in the lives of other men. Older men investing in younger men. Uh, men investing in their wives. To see this happen, the great goal. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was before Him. The joy that was before Him is His blood-bought people. And so Paul says, and every man I believe, and at some level a woman as well, in some ways that we also endure. And this is what Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 2.10. 2, uh, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also maintain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Right? He says, I endure everything. I do everything for the sake of the elect. Just as Jesus said, I endure the cross for my people. And Paul says, I endure everything for His people. And then he says, you for the joy that was before Him. That's what this text, that's what Paul is saying. The joy that is set before Paul on that eschatological day is the people of Christ. And so he does all things for them. This is why, and I don't know, I know I've been harping on this, Paul harps on it here, but the whole New Testament harps on it. It's one of the chief marks of a, of a true follower of Christ, someone in whom the Spirit lives, is that they love the brothers. They love the brethren. They love the church. They love the people of God. Right? They are the blood-bought people. 
Right? They, are the, they are His own. And as Christ has done all things, in a sense, enduring the cross and scorning its shame to purchase it, we do the same. We do the same. This is our people. When everything is stripped away, it will be the people we invested in. Second Corinthians 12.15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Man, that is manliness in the mold of Jesus. It flies in the face of culture. Where it's a dog-eat-dog world and we advance and we seek to win and we seek to be on top and we seek to present and we seek to, you know, and where we hide our weaknesses and we don't reveal ourselves and we live in, you know, hiding from vulnerability and showing. And we do not spend ourselves in the culture. This is manhood. I will spend myself for my wife, for my children. And for the other man and for the women, for the body of Christ, I will spend myself for souls. The eternal value, the eternal impact of loving, blood-bought souls. Can't get away without Lord of the Rings. Quote. Forgive me. Aragorn is stooping over the body of Boromir as he is dying. And Boromir is overcome with his failure as a man. And Aragorn says to him, I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you that I will not let the white city fall, nor let our people fail. He is the son of kings. He's the heir of Isildur. He does not know. He says, I don't know what strength is in my blood as a son of, a, of the kings. But whatever strength is in my blood, I swear to you that I will pour it out on behalf of the kingdom and the people of the kingdom. And I believe that's what Paul is saying. I think that's what we, that we need to do. I don't know what strength, brothers, is in our blood as sons of the king. But what strength is in us, I swear I will pour it out on behalf of the kingdom and God's people. I will invest in the growth and the progress of God's people. I will invest in others. The last few minutes, let's bring it down and say, you know, Paul answers his own question. Is it not you? And he says, what is my hope on that day? My joy, my crown. And he says, is it not you? And he answers his own question and he says, you, you, Last few words, you are my glory and joy. And interestingly, as he ends it there, he drops the hope in the crown. You notice he said that in the first, you're my hope, you're my crown. Those are the future elements. And when he says, is it not you? He, he throws away the future elements and he says, no, you are right now. You are my glory. You are my joy in this very moment. And that's why I want to get back to you so I can impart to you some spiritual gift that I can provide what is lacking in your face so I can disciple you and pour myself out for you. Man, do you see it? There are people around you right now sitting next to you and down the pew that should be your glory 
and your joy. It should be your glory and your joy to pour yourself out for them. Your glory and your joy to invest on them knowing that it is intimately tied up with that day. To have loved His people and poured yourself out, your time and your attention. That they're His people ultimately. That you have loved so well. Will you rise up to say, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So you need to, I would say, now brothers, we do this in concentric circles. And so the first thing I would say to some of you brothers is simply this. You've got to invest in yourself. There's a supreme value in souls. That includes yours. You need to understand your most prized possession in life is your soul. And sometimes we, don't, we neglect our souls. We're so busy doing this, that, and the other thing. And we've got so much going on that we don't look to the soul. The Scripture says, guard your heart. It is the very wellspring of life. It's the wellspring of everything else that comes out. Your heart, your soul is the wellspring of your life. Brothers, look to your souls. It's the first soul you should be investing in. Are you taking the time to feed, to nurture, to grow spiritually in Christ and to know what it is to be connected to Him? Are you investing? I would tell you now, whatever else you do, do not neglect the care of your soul. Love yourself a little bit. Start there. But it's concentric circles. And I say that partly because it's only as we know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with... He says, apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't pour out into your wife. You've got nothing to give her. And I know this. I know this from practical experience. When I am walking with Christ and I am with Him and caring for my soul, I'm a better husband. I love her better. I'm more generous. I'm more patient. I am more kind. I am more of the man He wants me to be. When I've looked to my soul, I have more to give. And more to pour out. And so, that's one of the reasons we look to ourselves. The greatest gift you can give to your wife and children is a thriving relationship with Christ. is a living, beating heart for Jesus. No greater gift that you can give to your wife, to your children, to your church. Ultimately, to Christ and to His kingdom. Look to your soul. But it's concentric circles. And then, then as we have that, we have to give. And I would say it starts at home. Brothers, if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. So many men miss this. They're giving out there. And they are doing stuff. And it looks good to the community or those who look on. And at home, people are starving. Starving for your attention. I was telling them this weekend, I was asked some question, and my answer was simply this. And I truly believe it's true. Men, your wives need something from you that they can only get from you. And if you will not give it to them, then you have made them vulnerable. And you need to give to your wives your time and your attention, your love. They need to feel secure in your relationship. They need to feel cherished. They need to feel like they're the most important thing in your life. They, they need that. They want that security. I believe it is our job, our job to make sure. And if they come to you and say, I don't feel like it's working or I don't feel secure, they say something to you. Say, I don't know why. I, you know, I work hard. I come home. I feed you. You got a house to live in. I'm home you know, some of the time. You know, didn't I mow the grass today? Brothers, love your wives as Christ loved the church and met her needs, her every need. Does He not give you what you need? Does He not know you better than you know yourself? To know your wife and to know her needs and to meet them, that is your job. 
That is job number one. And your children, the same I was telling them, you know, your daughter needs something from you. Your time and your attention to feel loved and cherished and to feel beautiful and to feel worthy and, and, and valuable. And if you won't make your daughter feel that way, there is a man who will. Or men who will. Fathers, love your daughters. Invest in their souls. Make them healthy and strong young women through your love and your strength. Impart your strength to your sons. They need to know who they are as men. And if you won't tell them who they are, if you won't tell them that they are strong and worthy and worthwhile, then somewhere they will seek an identity and it will disappoint you. Start caring for our own souls. Look to your home. That's why one of the qualifications of being an officer in the church is that your home is in order. Because if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Go home. And then concentric circles. The biblical ideal though is that we wouldn't just end there. The biblical ideal is that your well would be so deep that in Christ that He has poured so much into you that you are able to pour out. And men need to pour into other men. I believe we need to disciple each other. Oh my. <clears throat> As a struggling young man, I had been a number of different men who met with me, who talked with me. I was a really poor husband. She'll tell you right up. I'll tell you right up. Our first years of marriage were tough. I was a young man. I was immature. I was a young Christian. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. I was selfish and self-centered. I was arrogant and condescending. I was, you know, make the list. In other words, I was immature. I was an immature man and I was an immature Christian. And there were men who were willing to meet with me week by week by week and tell me things. Just from their own life. And they're like, brother, you take yourself too seriously. <laughs> you need to laugh at yourself. Because you're funny. <laughs> oh my God. You know you, you know, you do some pretty stupid things. And I'm like, I do some stupid things. I don't like to let anybody know that. I try to cover it up. I try to whatever. And don't laugh at me. I look around. Anybody see that? Don't laugh. You know, no, laugh at yourself. You do stupid things. It's okay. You know, let your wife laugh at you. And if she says, you know, so, you know something that... In other words, just to lighten up. I, I, I needed to hear it. I needed to hear her to not take myself... So serious. You know, because it came out in so many ways. I had to win. I had to be right. I had to be on top. I had to, you know, and then my brother told me, he's like, you know, dude, you know that if you're always the one who wins and you're the one who's always right, she's always wrong and she always loses. You want to be that guy? Like, no, I'm not going to be that guy. Well, then don't make her be that person, right? Don't make, you don't always have to win. You don't have to have to prove everything. In fact, and then another statement that just changed my life is they said, you know what, brother, there's something more important than winning. Your relationship. Sometimes a relationship wins when I lose. So I take one for the team. Right? So that's what we, you know, we begin to lay ourselves down to, to win, you know, to pour out my strength, not to dominate her and to win, but to pour out my strength to empower her and to strengthen her and to love her. We do it with each other, but these are things that men came into my life and were willing to tell me at a point when I needed to hear it. Men who would tell me my sin and love me anyway. 
In fact, help me. I had men who taught me the value of my own soul. Taught me to feed and care for my own soul. It was men who I spent time with, who I, I learned. It wasn't even something they necessarily told me, but I learned from them to hunger for holiness. Because many parts of discipleship are caught as well as taught. You know, and sometimes it's not just telling you you need to pursue holiness, but when you stand close to someone who's on fire with a passion to know Christ and to be holy, that is catching. You know, the whole, it only takes a spark to get a fire. But there's some truth in that. We catch fire. We warm ourselves at the heat of another man's life. And we catch fire. And I learned a hunger for holiness and to want to please God. And I learned it from other men who would walk with me. We'll talk more about discipleship in the months and weeks ahead. Something I've been thinking a lot about. How to help us do that. I would just simply say this. If you are in a position where you know you want to grow, I would just look around the room and think of who can I ask to just meet with me week by week. Maybe we'll read a book together and talk about it. And usually you start doing that and the next thing you know, ask them questions. How did you do it? This is going on in my marriage. How did you do it? This is going on in my work. How did you do it? I'm having this struggle with my kids. How did you do it? How do you do it? I'm having this problem in my own soul. How did you get past it? Read something together and talk about it. And then it's just life on life. Discipleship is not done solely through a classroom and entails the imparting of a life. We transmit not only what we know, but more importantly, what we are. So some of you men, if you're an officer in the church, one of the prerequisites, I think, in in the qualifications for office is that you're in a position, you have something to give. And you should have somewhere where you're giving it to young men. And if you're a young man and feeling it, look around and don't be afraid to ask. Would you meet with me? Would you invest me in me? Would you help me? Ministry is people. It's not programs. It's not meetings. It's not systems. It's not events. On that day, those things will pass away and we will stand before Jesus and our crown will be the people that we invested in. I do not know what strength is in my blood. But I swear, I will pour it out on behalf of the kingdom and His people. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have loved us so well. And that You have poured it out for us. That You have spent and were spent for our souls. Oh, Father, I pray that we would dig deep and that we would have such a well that we would be able to spend ourselves and pour out our strength on behalf of others. That we would give ourselves away. Father, I pray for the men in this church that they would catch a vision for investing themselves in other men. That masculine souls would get close enough to each other. That iron would sharpen iron and we would learn what it means to be men of God. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.